Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the CHESS Task Force uh, product on acute respiratory failure in COVID-19 patients. Um, I want to welcome our faculty really quick before we dive into questions. Uh, I have Dr. John Crest with me, who is the uh, director of the medical ICU at the University of Chicago, uh, cert both certified in anesthesiology, critical care, and pulmonary medicine. His interests are in the, uh, in the fields of respiratory failure as well as shock. Uh, sedation of critically ill patients uh, who are in respiratory failure. So uh, clearly a lot to learn from his experience. Dr. Calcutt, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at University of Nebraska. Uh, she's the Associate Medical Director for Infection Control and Epidemiology and the co-director, along with Dr. Marcellin, who's our third um, expert today uh, for the Division of Infectious Diseases um, for the digital innovation and social media strategy. Um, Dr. Calcutt's interests are uh, in studying uh, gastro-related infections as well as ventilator-related um, infections. Dr. Marcel, she is also an assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at University of Nebraska uh, with the uh, Division of Infectious Diseases, Associate Medical Director for the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program, and uh, like I mentioned, co-director for their uh, digital innovation and social media strategy uh, for the division. Um, Dr. Marcellin's other interests lie in discussing, studying, and uh, sort of promoting uh, thought about social determinants of health, which has clearly um, become an important topic as far as COVID-19 has uh, been concerned over the last few weeks. Uh, and she uh, discusses a lot about outpatient antimicrobial stewardship. So. Thank you, all three of you. Welcome. I'm very excited to have you back for part two. Thanks for having us back. Awesome. All right, guys. So you know what, Dr. Marcel, and I'll start with you because I'm pretty sure I left with you uh, last time. And I know you had handed out a few hope medals. I like that. So um, here's a question. What are the, what are the co-infection rates? Uh, in, uh, you know, with non sort of COVID-19 pathogens in people who are uh, positive for COVID-19? So this is, uh, this has been a really uh, important question to try to figure out as we're sorting through how to treat people, uh, what else could they have going on? And actually there are different numbers that are being reported uh, from different studies. So a re very recently, like yesterday, published study in uh, JAMA uh, described a 2.2% non-COVID respiratory infection rate. Um, and this was among 5,700 people in New York, and that's the largest um, case series that we have of uh, reported of SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 in the United States. The uh, infections that they found, the co-infections that they found were um, chlamydia pneumoniae, um, non-COVID-19 coronaviruses, enterovirus, uh, human metanumovirus, influenza, RSV, parainfluenza, mycoplasma pneumoniae. Uh, and uh, all in all, there was a very small uh, number of these co-infections. Contrast that to a study that was published back in early April um, from Wuhan described a 15% uh, viral co-infection rate. 
uh, and 8% bacterial co-infection rate. Um, and in that study, they looked at people who had severe symptoms and complications and found that they were more likely to have co-infections than those who didn't have severe symptoms. So I think uh, it depends on where you're looking at this and um, what, the, what the local situation is in terms of other circulating viruses or illnesses. And I think it's really interesting to see that in the, the two, uh, two of the big epicenters of this pandemic that the rates of co-infections were quite different from each other. That's fair. And just to reiterate the point, obviously, uh, presence of another pathogen should not be used to as a rule out for COVID-19. I think it was an initial strategy because of limited tests, but probably not something we should be continuing. Right. right. Agreed. In the, in the early descriptions of the, of the disease, um, there, we didn't have a lot of information about co-infections. And uh, so we, the, the strategy was if you find influenza, then go down an influenza path and, and not COVID-19. But certainly it is possible to be, to have a co-infection. And we see this with other things as well. There's a lot of uh, people who have influenza during the flu season and end up having a co-infection with a bacterial organism or a different uh, virus as well. And so certainly something that we can see. Beautiful. Um, I just want to take a second um, as our audiences are joining to just reiterate the fact that we used their questions from last time to build these questions. So if you guys have any questions, please type them out in the Q&A uh, tab on your uh, on uh, Zoom. And, you know, we are monitoring this and we will try asking uh, our uh, faculty these questions um, towards the end. All right, so the next question that I have is for Dr. Kress. Dr. Kress, in, this came up last time and there was a lot of follow-up questions about this. So, you know, in, as far as imaging goes, the guidelines recommend being judicious for a number of reasons, uh, be it for, you know, protecting resources or the fact that it may or may not change your decision. So why get something that's not gonna help you? So how do you, or how does one determine when to order an X-ray or a CAT scan and then just alternatively just doing an ultrasound bedside and um, how do you make that decision? What do you think about when you make that decision? I think the, the key really will focus on chest CT and ultrasound. It's hard to imagine that a patient in an ICU isn't going to get a, a chest film. So I, I just, that doesn't mean you have to get innumerable chest films, but it's hard to imagine you're not going to get a chest film. There's a very um, inter interesting regional difference, uh, certainly in Italy and uh, in Europe in general, but specifically in Italy, CT scanning has been advocated as the way of doing things like titrating ventilator settings because you can see lung that is recruited and lung that isn't recruited. Um, if CT was easy uh, and um, didn't carry risk, not only the transportation risk, but the risk uh, to spreading the virus if the patient is not intubated, then I think we would do it more frequently. There's also an issue of once you scan a COVID patient, then you have to do a terminal clean of the scanner, depending on your institution. For example, at my institution, that takes close to an hour. So you take the CT scanner out of uh, function for that period of time. Um, 
so I, I think uh, the main reason to get a CT would be to see whether you're dealing with a uh, conventional ARDS airspace filling process, which is heterogeneous, or this other uh, still poorly understood phenomenon in many patients with COVID where the lungs are not stiff um, and the air spaces are not uh, heterogeneously consolidated, but rather a sort of a subtle ground glass appearance that um, suggests the lung compliance is, is actually quite good. Um, I think there are other ways to do that. Looking at the mechanics on the ventilator, if you have a patient on a ventilator, is probably an, another easy way to do that. If the patient isn't on a ventilator, um, then you may not be able to see that. Um, but I think um, unless you're at a place that has the capacity to CT scan patients easily and frequently, I'd be inclined to say CT scan is not something we should be routinely reaching for. As far as ultrasound, um, if you are familiar with lung ultrasound, it's a magnificent tool. Um, but if you've not done it or don't have a lot of experience with it, um, it's not something that you're probably going to be able to learn on the fly in the midst of this um, pandemic. So I would say if you have experience with lung ultrasound, that seems to be an easy way to get around this debate. Uh, apart from that, it's going to just be depending on your institution. In the United States, for what it's worth, it seems that widespread use of CT is not nearly as um, frequently utilized as it is, uh, say, in northern Italy. That's helpful. So, of course, keeping in mind that are you going to get new information that's going to change your diagnosis or not, you know, keep these modalities in mind. And yes, keep in mind the guidelines. Like you said, you know, the disconnection time, the transport time, the cleaning times. That's super helpful. All right, Dr. Crest, I'm going to segue into our next question from here because of something that you brought up. So I'm sure you read Dr. Gattinoni's article, uh, publication, actually multiple journals about the different phenotypes. Uh, and he talks about these two phenotypes in ARDS, the H type and the L type. So what are your thoughts? Are these like new entities or is it just the old spectrum of ARDS? And now because we're seeing it all together, we're recognizing the heterogeneity that always was. And then accordingly, what, what, how do you think you titrate PEEP in these patients depending on your sort of um, approach? Um. I guess I should start by saying this is my opinion because I don't think it's been studied extensively. I do think they're different entities. Uh, and I think Gatnoni has been um, uh, a leader in this area for decades in talking about lung recruitability and ARDS and how some lung, some lung is recruitable and other lung isn't. Um, but we are seeing this fascinating spectrum of pathophysiology these people who have um, remarkable minute ventilation needs and remarkable um, dyspnea, and yet radiographically, we don't see a lot of abnormalities, whether it be by x-ray or by CAT scan, the so-called L-type. Um, that is not ARDS by conventional standards. And um, whether it is the beginning of a spectrum that's um, 
going to progress uh, or it's a, a separate pathophysiology and, and micro and macro uh, anatomic pathology, I don't think we really fully understand it. But there's no question that the L-type is a discrete phenotype that is seen in a large pe fraction of people with COVID. And that is not something that we typically think of when we see ARDS. Unstiff lungs, so very compliant lungs, um, uh, hypoxemia that doesn't follow the traditional uh, pathophysiology of shunt, but rather almost suggests as if it's a very high dead space fraction with a very poor ventilation and perfusion matching, but not refractory hypoxemia. Um, and, and then some people progress to the other type. The other type H is much more typical for what most of us would view as conventional ARDS. Stiff lungs, uh, heterogeneous um, distribution of the injury to the lungs with a gravity dependence, uh, propensity to respond well to proning, uh, propensity to respond well to increases in PEEP levels and things of that sort. So the H type is for most people that have taken care of patients in the ICU with ARDS, your conventional ARDS, the L type is this baffling other phenotype. And yet some people will progress from one to the other. Frustratingly, sometimes when that progression happens, it's, it happens on a dime. And I've seen patients where they're behaving like this so-called L-type, unstiff lungs, high minute ventilation, and then they just deteriorate literally over the course of minutes to hours. I think that's what's really just baffling people. So try PEEP. If it's beneficial, you usually can tell right away. If it isn't beneficial, uh, then you have to be careful that all you're doing is impeding venous return and worsening the circulation uh, and perhaps uh, putting the patient into a low cardiac output state. No, I, I, and I have to say from my, again, my experience personally taking care of these patients, I think the importance of providing close critical care and very sort of close follow-up becomes that much critical when adjusting PEEP. I think that's something that you're alluding to as well, which makes sense. So. Segwaying into uh, you know treatment uh, patterns here, just for our audiences, last uh, webinar we did cover a lot of these uh, modalities. Uh, Dr. Marcelin had a whole hierarchy of currently available treatments available. So I'll stick with just a few that were very um, hotly questioned in the follow-up. So the first one comes to Dr. Kaukut is so out of these outside these trials, you know, um, outside of being involved in the trial. What, when should we be using systemic steroids? Uh, different, different societies have come up with different guidelines. IDSA mm -hmm. has said only use during a trial. Um, SCCM has said that if you have ARDS requiring mechanical ventilation, consider use. So can you give us a practical sort of answer here? Yeah, so I think the practical answer is actually that we don't know, and even the SACM recommendation is notably weak and not all panelists agreed, and there's a disclaimer on that recommendation. Um, DHHS also just put out their national COVID-19 guidelines in the last few days, which also did not support the use of steroids outside of a state of refractory shock, 
which is what we talked about during the last webinar. So, you know, the SCCM recommendation was if you have severe ARDS, um, you know, potentially consider use of steroids in that setting. And, um, but it's very weakly recommended and frankly doesn't have a lot of evidence. I think we still come back to if you want the slam dunk, when should you use it? The answers are when you have a clinical indication due to underlying lung disease with, you know, obstructive lung disease, whether that's asthma, whether that's underlying COPD, or whether you have a patient who has um, primary or secondary adrenal insufficiency, those are the easy answers. I think refractory shock is still a reasonably easy answer to say this is not unreasonable. Now, if you are in a last ditch scenario, I think that's where people are going to reach for that recommendation from SCCM to say we have tried all of the supportive cares, we have been on pressers, we've you know looked, at, we're looking at the things that have weak recommendations, whether you're looking at inhaled vaso um, dilatory agents or one of the other medications that has not been proven. I think that's where steroids are going to fall in, and frankly. I think people are going to reach for that because they may not be able to get other medication options. If you think it's the last kind of realm of something to trial before someone dies, you have some ground to stand on with those SCCM guidelines. But whether or not it's going to help your patient, we really just don't know. And so I would really try to push that supportive care and evidence-based practice up until the point at which you can't. And then I think that's where you really consider, are you willing to take on the potential theoretical risk and hyperglycemia or other secondary infections that can happen with a short trial of steroids in a case of true severe ARDS that's failed all other measures and mechanisms for improvement? That's fair. I mean, I was going to follow up and ask you, you know, if you have any thoughts about using it early in the disease course versus late, simply because that has been a matter of discussion, but I will not pigeonhole you into that. If you have thoughts or you want to address it, have at it, but. Sure. I, Myself, if I'm the intensivist in the ICU, I, I can tell you right now, I'm not going to reach for it. Um, early on in the course. I don't think the evidence for early disease is great. And I think we have a lot of other evidence for aggressive ventilatory strategies for early proning for other things that do have impact that I'm going to reach for before I reach for steroids. That's fair. All right. So Dr. Marcelin, follow-up question to treatments for COVID-19 coming up for you. So I don't think a lot has changed in the week and a half. Um, since we last met on this platform, but with the data that we have available, I know there's, there's studies out even yesterday, which pharmacological therapy for you holds most promise or hope? Okay, yes. So the first thing to note is that there, again, still no fully approved recommended um, pharmacologic treatment uh, based on the available data. Um, although many countries have made their own recommendations. Um, and here in the U.S., the, the NIH did release a new living treatment guideline uh, this week that, again, reinforces that certain things uh, have some weak types of evidence, but no big uh, recommendations for using these drugs. So if I had to pull and say which uh, one or two I have the most hope 
in right now. I'm still going back to remdesivir um, with moderate hope. We know based on the initial in vitro trials um, and uh, prior studies uh, looking at it with uh, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV that there should be some activity. We're hearing um, whispers about hope in its use in randomized control clinical trials and the adaptive trial um, here in the U.S. is uh, almost complete and getting, hoping we should be getting some information pretty soon. Um, so I still can't make big recommendations on it, but I have still moderate hope in that. Um, there's about 10 trials that are ongoing um, at this point, and I'm most looking forward to the data from the randomized controlled trials where they're comparing remdesivir to standard of care uh, supportive treatment. And then um, if I had to pull for a second Moderate hope um, is, you know, based on the information that we have from, you know, case series looking at convalescent plasma, um, uh, showing that the antibodies appear to be neutralizing and at least are not harmful. Um, and uh, in patients who receive it, we have some, uh, albeit non-clinical, but um, virologic activity markers that are decreased with convalescent plasma, I would say that there is hope. Again, um, I'm really holding out that hope for those investigational um, studies. And so we have this ongoing uh, investigation use authorized by the FDA that I'm, I'm looking for. There's a lot of uh, centers out there that are enrolling patients in this and are actively giving convalescent plasma right now. So those are the two that I would say that I have the most hope for. Um, we certainly have a lot of other options out there on the market that people are looking at, um, but I am crossing my fingers for those two. All right, so I think this might blindside you a tiny bit. Do you want to pick a third? <laughs> So I actually had thought of a third just in case. Um, and um, I'm, I don't know if I would really say that I'm holding out hope, but I, I feel like it's the one that everybody is asking about. Um, it's hydroxychloroquine. And I last time I had given it low moderate hope. Um, and they, it seems like one time we have one study, um, observational study saying it works. Another time we have another one saying it doesn't. They're all small, they're observational, they have flawed designs. Many of them are preprints, not peer reviewed. Um, and so I think the, the jury is out still on that. It, it, to me, it's not looking good, honestly, for hydroxychloroquine. Um, but I looked on clinicaltrials.gov uh, and there are 68 clinical trials of some sort or the other that are investigating hydroxychloroquine. Um, where I am really intrigued uh, about the role of hydroxychloroquine is for um, pre and post exposure prophylaxis. And there's some uh, large um, studies that are enrolling from University of Minnesota right now that are trying to answer this question as to whether or not in people who don't have severe disease or who may have had an exposure, especially like healthcare workers, would they um, 
would this be helpful? And I think that's a really intriguing question considering uh, the, the numbers of healthcare workers that we're seeing coming down with this illness and, and even dying from it. But um, as far as treatment for you know, severe disease, I am just not really seeing uh, where, where a lot of the hope is left for hydroxychloroquine, but we'll see. Fair enough. And thank you. I'm, I'm glad that you know me well enough by now to <laughs> predict that. That's great. Um, well, I, I, I was, while you were, you know, discussing this, I thought I'll do a real-time search in clinicaltrials.gov. And right now there's 795 studies um, looking at various aspects of COVID-19 care. So my hope is that in the next month and a half, two months, we start to get some direction. Um, and this is good for science. I think we just got to be a little patient here, uh, like you mentioned. So um, talking, about, talking about treatments and then um, let's, let's sw switch to a different type of treatment. Dr. Kress, um, what do you think, what are your thoughts on awake proning? So we, we've proning in ARDS and ventilated patients, I think has been discussed or the evidence is clearer. Uh, but what about awake proning? What is its role? Should it be done for all patients currently with COVID-19? Does it make any sense? And then lastly, if you are in favor, if you think it should be done, like what's your protocol? Do you guys have a protocol? How many hours a day? Because that's been quite the contentious discussion as well. Do you want me to answer or Dr. Cockett? I just see, I'm happy to answer, but I just don't want to step out of line. No, no, I'm having a decaffeinated moment, so please, Dr. Cockett, go for it. Sure. Well, Dr. Chris, I'm happy to hear your thoughts on this also. Um, so I think this is a really interesting question and something that there was an article that came out in Critical Care in January 2020 looking at proning for ARDS in patients with high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive ventilation that did show some um, potential improvement for preventing the need for intubation with proning. So there's a lot of interest in this with um, ongoing studies actually starting to enroll. So there is a non-ICU COVID-19 study that is starting and going forward for proning um, to really address this more specifically, even outside of the intensive care unit and on hospital floors. But I do think there's definitely potential there. And especially in the setting of being faced with possible shortages of ventilators or the concern for trying to avoid non-invasive ventilation modalities if we could use high-flow nasal cannula, this may be a very reasonable option to try. It is a fairly low-risk option if you select your patients carefully, right? So we have to be very cautious about who we select to prone. You need patients who can follow instructions, who are safely able to be rolled, who aren't, as in, are not going to aspirate, they don't have pressure wounds that would limit their rolling that are going to cause detrimental effects for them otherwise. And if you have someone who meets those criteria, I think it's very reasonable to look at proning prior to intubation, both in the intensive care unit with that um, prior ARDS study, but also even outside of that for patients who have increasing oxygen, where maybe you're already starting at five or six liters of nasal cannula and you're looking at what your options are, that may be worth trial to see how it works. Again, lower risk if you select your patients carefully, making sure you take into account those prior balances. 
um, to the question of do we have a protocol? We do, and it is on our website that is external and public facing, and I can certainly put that um, out in the chat or in the Q&A. It is actually called our protocol. <laughs> Um, and is widely available to pull it offline and look at what we're doing for proning and ventilatory strategies for our patients. That's awesome. And I, I do want to thank both you and Dr. Marcel, and as well as, you know, institutions that across the country are uh, sharing their protocols publicly. You know, Seattle, they, they led with that. And I think that's been a huge uh, positive in this pandemic is how much we're sharing knowledge. So thank you for doing that. Um, so yeah, if you don't mind sharing that on the Q&A, Dr. Cockett, um, that would be great. So now that I think my coffee levels have come out, Dr. Kress, this one is actually for you, is what, what do you think about you know intubating early? So I, I'm sure we all remember initially there were calls for, you know, you've got to intubate off the bat. Six liters of nasal cannula and you intubate, you know. Uh, I thought a lot of it was, of course, coming out of concern for uh, aerosolization and so on and so forth. But we have clearly learned uh, that there might be other strategies like allowing the, you know, sort of low SATs to not dictate that intubation. What do you think about that? Which method do you sort of prescribe to and what do you suggest? Well, my, my personal opinion is no. But there's a hot debate about this. There are two pieces to it, I think. The first is, um, as you said, the worry to the healthcare provider with aerosolization of the virus as you start going beyond. Uh, the numbers are arbitrary, but six liters per minute by nasal cannula is a number you'll hear people sometimes talk about. If the patient requires more than six liters, we go immediately to intubation. Uh, because face mask uh, with higher flows of oxygen, nasal cannula, high flow nasal cannula, um, and things of that sort, mask, non-invasive ventilation, all risk aerosolizing the virus. There's no question about that. Um, and if you're in a situation where you don't have the protective equipment you need, um, which would, in my view, also include being in a environment where the room is pressurized negatively so that the air escapes out without uh, recirculating in the room. There's a legitimate worry about that. I don't know of any good evidence uh, other than what we know about the nature of particulate matter aerosolization and um, things of that sort. So there's a physics behind it for sure. But just because the particle aerosolizes doesn't mean it's going to make people nearby necessarily get sick, get infected or sick. So I think waiting to hear what the results are in centers that are allowing high-flow nasal cannula, that are allowing uh, high-flow face masks um, with the appropriate protection um, and seeing whether their healthcare providers are becoming infected, um, we don't have those data yet. Uh, my anecdotal experience has been, we aren't seeing it, but that's just an anecdote. So take that for what it's worth, an anecdote. Um, so, second, sorry, sorry, go ahead. The second part, which is a little different, has to do with this interesting concept about um, large swings in pleural pressure in, an, in a lung that is injured and the propensity to self-inflicted injury to the lungs by 
this um, dramatic change in pleural pressure. Um, that's another hot debate, and, and I can, if anybody wants, I can refer you to references about that. But that likewise, outside of the animal um, experimental environment and anecdotes in humans, has not been proven. And you may be trading one danger for another. If patient self-inflicted lung injury is a phenomenon that actually occurs, I think it probably does. Um, then putting an endotracheal tube in and putting the patient into a deep state of sedation or neuromuscular blockade in an effort to avoid the pleural pressure swings that might lead to self-inflicted lung injury doesn't come for free because intubated, sedated, paralyzed uh, puts you at risk for innumerable other problems. So we may be trading one problem for another. There are two camps, there are two philosophies. There's a paper that uh, was written by uh, Gattinoni. Uh, there's an interesting paper that was recently written by uh, Martin Tobin uh, in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. Um, they're editorials or they're, they're opinion pieces, uh, but they're by people that have been doing this for decades. And the two camps say, Intubate early is good because you avoid the patient self-inflicted lung injury and all the other problems that occur. And if you wait too long when the patient has crashed or deteriorated, then outcomes are poor. Martin Tobin, uh, I think very elegantly in his editorial, talks about that being a self-fulfilling circular argument, though, which is, so I waited too long and then I intubated and you had a bad outcome. Is that because I waited too long or is that because the nature of your illness is such that it was going to happen and there isn't unfortunately anything that medical science can do about that? And that's a debate that uh, sort of starts to transcend medicine and science almost into metaphysics, which I won't go into. Um, so the bottom line is there are two camps. I think the evidence that, it, that waiting to intubate is harmful um, is debatable, uh, but, but I do know that the two groups that are out there that are advocating for these different approaches um, appeal to these two things. And I think, are we harming our healthcare providers by aerosolization of the organism is an important question and anecdotally, my answer is no, but it's only anecdotal. And then the second deeper one is, does putting a person to rest on a ventilator and not letting them hurt their own lungs avoid the transition from the first phenotype to the second phenotype? An interesting concept that hasn't been proven. No, that's fair. And, and just for every all the attendees, I just uh, in the um, chat section shared the link to the paper by Dr. Tobin that you're discussing, which was relatively more recent. Um, as a follow-up, you know. Sorry for interrupting. Can I just ask? So I think it would be that's great. Thanks for doing that. Um, do you also have the critical the intensive care medicine link for Gatnoni? Yes, I'm looking. I'm, I'm getting that right now. They're each three or four pages long. They're not long. Those two links, reading them side by side, I think will nicely nicely illustrate this debate and also the frustrating fact, which is we just don't know. Yeah. No, I'm if I can, from the infection control standpoint, um, I think the perceived risk of aerosolization in the setting of aggressive infection control and PPE is becoming 
a diminishing risk that we are recognizing as more of the literature evolves. So a lot of the early studies, when you really go back and look at them, and that they reported healthcare worker infections at very high rates, but they were also early in the outbreak. They did not have broad, aggressive training on donning, doffing, and use of PPE strategies that may have been appropriate or transport strategies or all of these other pieces that are coming into play. Some of the studies that are coming out now specifically in the infection control literature are actually fairly suggestive that if you are following very stringent infection control policies and you are using N95 level protection with face shields, gowns, gloves, and universal masking protocols, the healthcare exposures are happening in the community setting and not necessarily in the hospital. One of the early US studies that implicated a high percentage of healthcare workers actually occurred in a hospital where they had not had a confirmed COVID case yet, but subsequently most of those people exposed were also found to not have been following any social mitigation strategies of significance and not having universal masking in place. So I think there's a lot that has evolved that increases the safety and diminishes the risk to healthcare workers, which allows us a lot more leeway to use high flow nasal cannula, to use non-invasive ventilation. And at our institution, those are all things that we are using even in COVID positive patients. Thank you. And I appreciate that because there was a follow-up question there about high flow use. Um, can I, it, this is this kind of pertains to all of the things that both Drs. Cockett and Kress discussed, but any of you, please feel, to, feel free to answer. But, you know, I feel that with sedation, we, we often, maybe we don't forget, but what comes with is the sedation, the, you know, potential paralysis, the, uh, you know, deconditioning, the diaphragmatic weakness. And I think you, we can talk about the sort of different hypoxic loads and what's causing the hypoxia, but then there's the downstream effect, uh, the sort of, uh, of our decisions. And I think we have to just keep that in mind as well, especially as it's turning out that these patients are relatively harder to extubate uh, as we're seeing from whatever literature is out there. Do you think that kind of factors into your decision as you decide whether to intubate or whether to ride out that low saturation a little bit? Yeah, I think it does. Um, you know, one interesting thing, this is maybe stating the obvious or not so obvious is, it's not just it's not just large tidal volume. Uh, people that run well, long distance marathon runners um, who actually have been measured um, in the midst of a you know intense long distance run will generate tidal volumes four liters, huge tidal volumes. They don't injure their lungs, so there has to be something more to it than just a big tidal volume. The pleural pressure swings that are uh, that occur in um, people who are exercising heavily do go up a little bit compared to normal, but not a huge amount. But that's because normal people who are healthy running a marathon have very compliant lungs. So I think it's the combination of the injury to the lung, which makes it more prone to further damage, and the swing in the pressures that is um, generated when respiratory distress ensues. And um, as I said, there's a, there's a large body of literature. Most of it's animal work. Um, if you wanted to look up a reference, 
Um, there's a person, the last name is Yoshida, Y-O-S-H-I-D-A, and his first initial is T, and he's published extensively on this uh, in animal models about pleural pressure swings and propensity to injure the lungs. Interestingly, though, Yoshida also published that if you raise the PEEP, presumably to recruit lung, the pleural pressure swings and the injury to the lungs is not nearly as substantial. So it, I wish it was simple, but, but it isn't. <laughs> um, the other thing, if I can, I would just add to those risks, because we were talking about it earlier, is the use of steroid. So if we talk about giving corticosteroids for last-ditch efforts and ARDS based on weak recommendations, when we know if we've already employed longer duration of intubation, sedation, and neuromuscular blockade, we are certainly going to have increasing risks of myopathy and neuropathy happening for these patients. And that is not a benign thing for these patients. And so remembering that everything we do or don't do does have the potential of an adverse event for these patients. And we have to weigh those very, very carefully. That's fair. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, you know, no, at least you can't blame me for going off the script here because I'm about to. So my question is, this, there's new data, right? So I'm sure you've seen the studies talking about neurological sort of outcomes in COVID-19 patients describing significant amount of uh, what seems like either uh, sort of hypoactive delirium or just maybe direct sort of effects from COVID-19. Of course, it's hard. You're in it. I think it is the same thing. And if you have, what are you doing for these patients? Like, how do you, what is the next step after extubation? You, you got on the screen, you were frozen for a little bit. So we, we got what you do, but before that, I don't think at least I didn't hear the question. I see. My question is, so a lot of these patients are going into hypoactive delirium post extubation. It's challenging for nutrition, for mobility, um, you know, aspiration risk. So are you experiencing it, Dr. Cocker, Dr. Marcelin, Dr. Cress? And if you are, so far, what, what has been your strategy in moving these patients along? Because you have to remember the, the isolation precautions make it hard to deliver these seemingly simple interventions. I think from a delirium standpoint, I don't know with our number of patients that I could say definitively we're seeing a higher rate of one type of delirium versus another, but our approach has been fairly standard. And actually we have PT and OT going into COVID positive unit cases and are still doing the same types of um, delirium based management of mobility levels of alertness, being awake as able, um, you know, of, little more caution with medications, particularly because of the risk of QTC prolongation that we have seen even in patients not receiving any other significant medications. Um, but we are, again, really employing very aggressive infection control policies and trying to provide that standard of care that we would have for delirium in any other scenario to the patients the same way because they're in there for a lot longer and certainly it can cause um, some more difficulty with achieving some of those goals, but I don't know that that's necessarily profoundly different than the difficulty of achieving some of those goals for our sick patients prior to COVID outside of the PPE standpoint. 
Marcelin, from your standpoint, what do you think about uh, the next question, which is question eight, which we can pull up on the surface, uh, is, you know, what is the role for early mobilization? You know, how do you allow that to happen from infection control standpoint? I know Dr. Cockett already said it's important, but what about those PPE usages and what about, you know, all those restrictions? So I think it's important to consider all of this in the context of what are the resources available to your institution. I think first and foremost, um, it, it, could, it can seem um, maybe easy to back off on some of these things that we do as normal care for our patients who are in the ICU because putting in putting on the extra PPE is, is a hassle, but our patients are still our patients. And even though they have a, a disease that is highly contagious, we do have the tools available to help to protect us from the virus that they have. And so yes, early mobility is something that is important pre-COVID and should remain important during COVID using the appropriate PPE. And um, you know, some of the ways that this can be coordinated is, um, is there abilities to batch the, um, the mobility between the different rooms? If you have you know, PTOT coming on the floor, um, can they batch it so that they are doing a number of different rooms? Um, can we use, can we reuse and, um, and decontaminate the PPE that we have so that we are able to still um, save and not have a high burn rate of PPE. And then uh, continuously reassessing with the nursing staff who may be going in with the patient, what are some of the things that can be, do, that can be done simultaneously as I, as I am taking care of administering X medication? Is there an opportunity for um, certain types of uh, mobility exercises that can be done or working with the patient in that way to make it um, more seamless? So I think there's a lot of um, opportunities to be creative while still providing the best care for our patients, notwithstanding the fact that they have COVID-19. And I think if I can just echo that, I think it's really important. We know that management of delirium, management of early mobility impact clinical outcomes. And if we want to optimize our clinical outcomes, we also need to do our best to use the science and the infection control practices and the cohorting and the reuse and extended use to not degrade our standard of care to a lower level than pre-COVID. And it's very easy, as Dr. Marcellin noted, to allow that to happen and not have as many people enter a room because of PPE use or because they're COVID positive. But if that is a degradation in standard of care, then we shouldn't be surprised if we see a degradation in outcomes. And so I think we have to weigh those pieces together and be creative, be innovative, and use the solutions we can as Dr. Marcellin mentioned several of them, to try and really provide the highest standard of care that we can for these patients. Perfect. So I, I like that resounding support for uh, management of early mobilization for these patients. Um, I'm going to save the very last question, Dr. Marcellin, because I have a whole list of questions from the audience, right? So any of all three of you, any, any one of you can go for these. They're relatively contentious, so I'm going to get right into it. So there's been at least 15 times this question has been asked, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. 
what is the role of empiric anticoagulation in patients with COVID-19? And are you using any inflammatory marker cutoffs? I really wanted to stay away, but I think the public really wants to know. So. I gave my two cents last time and it hasn't changed. I'm gonna let Dr. Cresco after that one if he wants to also. Sure. Um, the best answer is that we need to study it. And we are, people are. In, in the absence of, of good data, what are the facts? There's no question that patients with COVID-19 have a propensity to a hypercoagulable state that's quite um, remarkable, honestly. So I think vigilance for um, venous thromboembolism is um, a must. Uh, at least some sort of DVT, VTE prophylaxis, um, most of the patients that should be chemical. I mean, I suppose you could imagine somebody who's had a major bleed into their head or something like that. But in the absence of something really, uh, and even that you could debate, but, but in the absence of something really profound, it needs to be chemical. I think most people are reaching for low molecular weight heparin as their staple. Um, and then the last part of the question is at what level? Um, and there is where the debate is. Conventional, um, I would say the mainstream opinions that I'm hearing, but they're just opinions, are more than just conventional. So go more heavy-handed, higher levels of prophylaxis. And then the last part, which we don't have an answer to, um, is should we be just anticoagulating therapeutically empirically across the board. To me, that seems a bit much, although it could be studied, and, and I think it will be studied. Uh, but in the absence of good data, to me, that seems a bit reckless uh, as to just a standard. Everybody gets full systemic anticoagulation the moment you land in the COVID unit. Um, so I, I think most people are landing in the middle there, which is a more than conventional, aggressive, uh, prophylactic regimen uh, whether it's measuring factor 10A levels and targeting them to higher levels, that's what many centers are doing. Um, that's where I would stand. That's where I do stand. Makes sense. All right, so this is a little bit of ID, infection control, and critical care question together. So all three of you can jump in. One, should we, doing, should we be doing tracheostomies for these patients? I know infection control has thoughts on that. And then if we're going to be doing them, should we be doing them early? Should we doing, be doing them in three weeks? Um, I know there are some guidelines in works, uh, which I, you know, obviously I can't talk about, but what do you guys think? What's, what's current evidence? What do best practices dictate? I'll go from infection control standpoint with a mix of the ID critical care side. Um, we are proceeding with tracheostomies in our patients who are COVID positive. We are not doing them early. Just like many other scenarios, we lack great evidence that early is going to be better. And frankly, a lot of our patients that we've had, we've been able to extubate and wouldn't have needed that tracheostomy and be committed to a procedure. And that procedure certainly carries increased risk as far as aerosol generation, because you're cutting into an airway, we know our oropharynx and nasopharynx are the highest areas in which we're seeing viral replication that can also be viable for culture, for risk. But we are not necessarily extending out to a 21-day standard. We are probably pushing a little closer to the 14-day line. Maybe we would have 
in some of our patients in the past um, for that extubation. But we are doing that. We do it in conjunction with our ENT colleagues with their expertise and placing them. Some of them are done as an option potentially at the bedside. Some could be done in the operating room, again, depending on the difficulty of the procedure. They are done, in, if in our COVID unit, it is done under negative pressure, and our ENT surgeons are doing them under PAPR, which is different than many other scenarios as far as a surgical procedure being done with PAPR. It has not historically been a recommended um, operative technique for personal protection. So they do wear a procedure mask under the PAPR to decrease the risk of theoretical surgical site infections. Um, I think you can also strategize for which way you place a trach, right? Is it percutaneous or is it open? A percutaneous one probably has a significant decrease in the amount of aerosol generation compared to an open procedure. But again, there's still the disposable bronchoscopy component for many of our bedside procedures, and there's still aerosol with that. So I think there's some caveats of timing and strategy, but I don't think we have any evidence to say earlier is better. And certainly we don't, we have evidence that the, says the longer you stay endotracheally intubated, the higher your risk of developing, you know, stenosis or other adverse event from the ET tube is there. So again, we have to weigh those things and, you know, push and try to get to that, I think a little bit longer date um, that's reasonable without adverse event for trial of extubation if you can. Awesome. Continuing with this rapid fire, um, Thoughts on helmet CPAP? Um, I'll take that one. Um, so the helmet has great potential. The helmet works, doesn't work in everyone. Um, it works in less often than in the trial that we did four years ago. I don't know why. Uh, the experience that we are having and that others in the U.S. are having mirrors what the, um, mostly in Northern Italy, where I think that the use of helmet is standard. The helmets in northern, in, in certain parts of Europe, particularly northern Italy, are like BiPAP face mask, NIPPD here. So they use it all the time. Um, and they're telling us that their success rate is probably in about the 30% range. So if you're going to use it, I, I'd say there's a few things. The first is um, you need to get some familiarity with it. Um, the helmets that are available in the United States um, are not as user-friendly as the ones that are in Europe, but they're the only ones we have. Um, they um, generally, if they work, you can tell within a matter of a couple of hours max. Um, I wouldn't try it for my first run on my sickest patient. I would try it on somebody who um, is relatively easier to manage. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, so the saturation is 92% and the patient's breathing 26 breaths a minute as opposed to the saturation is 70% and the patient's breathing 50 breaths a minute. Um, somebody, um, some people don't like it because it's tight around their neck. You can usually maneuver through that, but not always. It's kind of like riding a bicycle. If you take the training wheels off for the first time, most people fall but it's not hard to learn once you get a little bit of a familiarity with it. Um, and it does avoid intubation in a minority, but not trivial minority of people. So you need a respiratory therapist, probably a physician and probably a nurse. I would say those three who are interested um, and, and want to be sort of the champions of it, if you will. If you can find that, it's worth a try. 
Uh, you know, we've been doing it for a number of years and there's no question it works in some people. Um, it's just that if it isn't working, it's kind of like using non-invasive inhalation by face mask. If you put the mask on and the patient is clearly not doing well by clinical criteria, not just the pulse oximeter, you have to abandon, you have to declare it a failure and move on to intubate. If you keep the helmet on and the patient is languishing inside the helmet, um, that's a recipe for uh, significant uh, bad outcomes. Makes sense. So close monitoring is still super important. Well, All right. interesting. In, in Europe, they put the helmet on people on the wards. Oh. But that's because everybody's familiar with it. Right. I would not put a helmet on somebody on the ward, at least in my hospital, right. only intensive care unit. So, so it is something that you can get familiar with with time, but, but it's not something I think in the United States, at least, where I would use it outside of an ICU. Makes sense. Well, we're heading into the final stretch, four minutes left to go. Uh, just a few housekeeping reminders. The uh, webinar, the recording will be up on Monday. Um, so you can reference this in part one. Uh, it'll be on the um, ACCP's uh, COVID-19 uh, resource site. Um, if you have questions, please email us. Uh, we will try to be, we in the past have gone through and tried to answer as many of them as we can, especially if we didn't get to them for the webinar. And then if you have suggestions for future sessions, what topics could be covered, I am seeing a lot of interesting ones come up in the discussion. Please let us know. We'll be happy to do that. And before we go, I have a closing question for Dr. Marcel. And so um, antibody testing, right? It's it's the new buzzword. It's It's happening. I was recently called by a friend to say it was being offered uh, via some channels in one of the local pharmacies. And if I wanted to know, I should show up. I didn't because uh, I wasn't sure what to do with it. But uh, so what do you think? What's gonna, what, what is the application right now? Uh, what can you make of the tests and, and where is this gonna go? What is gonna be the future role in the pandemic? So it's a great question. And I think in those last few minutes, uh, there's a couple important key points. The first is the antibody tests are meant to determine if you have had a recent exposure to COVID-19. So it does not di diagnose disease now today, right? Um, so that's the first important thing. Um, what about applications for it? I think there are a lot of really great applications. First, I'm thinking about uh, what we, the answer that we really need to figure out is what is the prevalence of, of disease in our community? Um, how widespread is it? Doing antibody testing can certainly help with figuring that out. Um, it can be a useful um, back to work strategy for employees who may have been um, exposed or who may have been furloughed or if you're trying to kind of open things back up. Um, the, it tells us that a person, you know, if they had been exposed to it, it does not necessarily tell us that they are never going to be um, at risk for developing COVID-19 in the future. Um, so it's important to not relax on our current mitigation strategies um, just because we have antibody testing available. And then the other place that I think uh, the antibody testing will be very useful, of course, is with um, our use of convalescent plasma 
um, trying to figure out if if there is going to be a benefit for that as a treatment, um, uh, knowing who has or has not had um, exposure to COVID-19 with the antibody test would be helpful. It's important to know that there are a lot of these tests available. Um, they don't all have the same standards. They're not all authorized by the FDA. Uh, and in fact, the, the FDA website has about 44 tests that are available um, for some sort of diagnostic testing of COVID-19 and only four of them are serologic tests. And so all the other 70 plus tests out there are not really authorized for use. And so that brings in some issues with the standard of tests, how reliable they are uh, and what the, what the answers actually mean. Um, so take all of that with a grain of salt, I would say, and I would probably rely more on ELISA-based tests than lateral flow assay tests, um, just because the, the lateral flow assay test may have more tendency to be inaccurate. Um, but I'm still hopeful that we'll have some good information from testing that's available. Awesome. So like I said, more PPE, some more testing um, so we can get around to opening up with, you know, and safely and in due course. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Marcel and Dr. Cockett and Dr. Crest for joining us. It has really been an informative session, I'm sure for the attendees and for me as well. Uh, and I hope we can have you back on this platform soon. Have a thank good day. You. Bye. Bye.